Hey, entrepreneurs and website owners, if you're ready to take your online presence to the next level, you need a reliable web post. And that's where Hostgator comes in. Hostgator is your one-stop solution for easy, affordable, and powerful web hosting. Whether you're launching a blog, an online store, or anything in between, Hostgator's got you covered. Don't miss out on creating the website you've always wanted. Visit milwaukeemafia.com slash Hostgator today and let your online journey begin. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to Milwaukee Mafia. This is Eric Waltergens. This is Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, take it away with our subject of the day. All right, so I have to do something before we begin. It seems like you have to do something before we begin a lot. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Well, so uh, I wanted to get people up to speed for this episode. Uh, Eric, do you remember the name Frank Legelbo at all? I do remember the name. I don't know that I could pin it back to where I remember it from. Okay, so he's, he's important. So I want to kind of remind people of who he is. Uh, he first came up because he's a nephew of Vincent Krupe, the guy who was... Uh, the vice lord uh, in Milwaukee. So Frank Legalbo would like help out around the, the red light district, that sort of thing. And then he came up again later because he was a business partner of Angelo La Mancha. Um, they had a tavern together. Uh, he came up again and he sort of was one of the guys that the people from Colorado talked to. And so he's he's popped up a little bit here and there along the way, but he's going to come up a little bit more today. Such a small little world we, we Milwaukee Mafia people live in. Yes. Not, not that I'm a part of the Milwaukee Mafia. Yes. But. <laughs> okay. So Frank Legalbo, this guy, he's uh, he's arrested for assault with intent to kill in May 1932. A man named Joseph Dentiste was shot while inside Phil's Barbershop in the Third Ward. Four rounds of buckshot from an automatic shotgun came in through the plate glass window. Some of it hit him in the lower back. A barber chair and the wall were also hit. Four other men inside the barber shop were hit by flying glass. Um, they were all okay, but they did get a little bit of glass thrown at them. One of the men there ducked into a back room while he was still lathered with a towel around his neck. Had he stayed in the chair, he probably would have died. Outside, police found a 12-gauge shotgun and four shells. The serial number had been sawed off. Well, not sawed off, but, you know, scrubbed yeah. off. Yeah. Uh, Sergeant Deaton who you may remember as the guy who's not Italian but can speak Italian. Yep. He was in charge of this investigation, and coincidentally, he had actually gotten a shave in that same barbershop just a few hours earlier. So he had already been there that day. <laughs> uh, Dentiste, Joe Dentiste, was treated at the hospital before he was moved to the police ward of the general hospital for his safety. He was unable to identify the gunman or the car they drove. Police believe the attack was retaliation for Dentis's ratting out his cousin's killers. So they pick up they pick up Frank Legobo for uh, assault with intent to kill, but it ends up not going anywhere because he the guy he shot at or allegedly shot at refuses to identify him. But now we're gonna go back a step before we go forward. This this episode's all over time, so it's gonna get confusing. I apologize. Why was Denti shot at? He was accused of ratting out his cousin's killers because a year before this barbershop incident. Dentiste had been in New York. He was visiting his cousin, John Riggio. His father said, you should probably not visit your cousin. He's involved in the grape and wine business, and you know what that means. 
You know what that means. Mob, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He also had a legitimate business. He owned some mini golf courses. (laughs) While in New York, uh, the two of them met two other men at Coney Island and drove to the other men's houses. Or house, I guess. The car was parked in front of the most precious blood Catholic church in Brooklyn. When all of a sudden, the two new guys turned around and shot Dentise and Riggio, with Riggio dying of his wounds. Dentise, shot in the chin but still alive, was found by police slumped over the steering wheel and taken to a hospital. Members of the church were nearby and scurried in a panic. Dentise identified the killers. They were two local Brooklyn guys, so I'm not even going to say their names. They're not really relevant. Uh, When it came time for trial, Dentise was locked up because they felt he was safer in the jail than he was on the streets. After mistrial the first time, they were tried again and the killers were convicted. One of them even got the electric chair. So yes, so the mob might have a reason to be mad with this guy because uh, you're not supposed to go to court and testify against people. (laughs) That's a big no-no. Now we're jumping ahead. Now we're up to 19... Hold on one second, because maybe I'm really confused here, but okay, Okay. so the the walkie mafia is upset because this guy testified that somebody killed somebody in Brooklyn? Yes, you are not confused. Okay, are we getting to this where this becomes unconfusing to me? No, not at all, it will not. (laughs) But, um, I mean, pretty much what happens is word gets around that somebody has a price on their head. So you could send a guy from Brooklyn to do the job, or you can kind of like pass the note along me like, hey, Milwaukee guys, could you do us a favor? You got a guy living in your neighborhood that we don't really like very much. Just does, do the Milwaukee guys care all that much about this guy? No. But they probably got word, if this is what actually happened, they probably got word from Brooklyn that, you know, this guy needs to be taught a lesson. lesson. Yeah. So do you... Do you so there's not like, it's not like they're like working together all the time, but... But they, you do that. I mean, if you got somebody who moves to another area, they either have to join the new group or if they're a problem, they have to be removed. I mean, it's so there is business that has to be handled when people move place to place. I'm just curious. Do you have any idea in the situations where this would happen? Would the, I guess it would be the New York mob, would they pay the Milwaukee mob to do this? Or is this just something you do as a favor to each other? It could go both ways. It goes both ways. Yeah. I mean, generally, I'd say it's just a favor. But as we're going to find out soon, there is money going around. Now we're going to get back to being confusing again. Okay. So now we're going to jump back to a completely different era. Now it's current day, 1937. Okay. Okay. Forget about any of this that you just heard. <laughs> the, the, the only point of this was to show that Frank Legalbo was picked up for being the suspect in this particular job. That's the only point of this. Okay. So you can forget all about that, except that the gobo was picked up for attempted murder. Okay. All right. So ignore the rest of it. It's now June 1937. (laughs) Frank Legobo is back. With him is Mike Minio, a captain in the mob, and they are with Jack Dentise, which is a total coincidence, Jack Dentise, not related to Joe Tentis, the other guy that he that he allegedly shot at. Or, you know, they might be cousins or something, but nothing that I, nothing really obvious that I could find. They're drinking together at the Miami Club downtown. The Miami was a popular hangout in the 1930s and 40s, and they had many bigger name acts that came through. But later on, it got a very bad reputation, with the newspaper calling it the Jinx of the Jinx which I don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound yeah, good. Yeah, it doesn't sound good at all. We don't know very much about this guy, Jack Dentise, 
We know he was 29, divorced. He lived with his brother. His ex-wife moved to Michigan. His parents were still alive, and he had four siblings. He had previously operated the Cotton Club in Racine under the name of John Danish, which is actually not that strange. Some some people, he's not the only one named Dentis that went by Danish. I don't know. Maybe it was easier for some people to say. say I'm not sure. Within an hour of leaving the Miami club, it's after midnight, and Dentis is found dead. He's shot in the head in his upper left arm. The body was left in his Ford V8 at the corner of Jefferson and Menominee in Milwaukee. The radio and headlights were still on. Police immediately picked up Frank Lagalbo outside the Little Italy Tavern. Dentis's clothes were sent to Madison for examination. Lagalbo's hands were given wax impressions, and it was shown that there was gunpowder on his hands, which usually means that you had recently fired a gun. So if the, for people who don't know, um, they'll actually put your hand like in wax, and they'll look at the wax, and gunpowder residue will come off. And there's not a good reason that gunpowder residue should be on your hands. Unless you fired a gun. Unless you fired a gun. <laughs> Unless you fired a gun. And this is also, like, sometimes when they're investigating, this is how they can tell if something's like a murder or a suicide. Because um, if it looks like a suicide, but there's no none of this blast residue, like, around somebody, they are not the one who fired the, the gun, gun on themselves. Because you your arm doesn't stretch far enough to not uh, get, get powder on you. He could be standing next to a guy who fired a gun and get on. That's possible. But either way, he's pretty close to a gun going off. Legelbo admitted that he was drinking with Jack Dentis, but he insisted that they were strangers and had never met before. Police suspected that two men had been involved in the killing. One of them held Dentis's hair from the back seat while the other man shot him. Legelbo's attorney tried to get him freed out on a, on a writ of habeas corpus, but the plea was rejected. This is now the captain of the police speaking to the press. Captain Kramer says, quote, We have evidence that Dentiste was trying to muscle in on an illicit alcohol gang. Frank Legobo said to the fr- press that he was framed and said, When I heard that Dentiste had been killed, my blood froze. The police had to get somebody for his murder, and they picked on me. He claimed that the powder on his hands was because he had been hunting pigeons earlier that day. He hired Mario Migna as his attorney, and Mario Migna came up in a previous episode, and uh, I keep reminding you that he will come up again as a guy who's involved in child trafficking. So we will <laughs> we will get to child trafficking. I don't remember the name, but I do remember the guy that was going to come up for child trafficking. So. Yeah. <laughs> So not, uh, maybe he's a great attorney. I guess I don't know. He might be a fantastic attorney, but a terrible person. Well, anyway, the charges ultimately get dropped when they are unable to really find any evidence on Legalba. So he does get held for a little while. But other than the, the powder on his hands, which he claims was from shooting pigeons, they have nothing. So the charges are dropped. Now the story takes a big turn. The police receive a big break on July 4th when Tony Gennaro who is an inmate at Waupon State Prison, sends a letter to Captain Kramer. Gennaro writes, Dear Adolf, Finally, I have the opportunity to drop a few lines to you. I observed in the newspaper about Jack Dentis, who was slayed last month. I am very sorry that this had to happen. If you are interested in this matter and you want to find out about Dentis, you can go and see Grace Gennaro. She lives on North Marshall Street. After you have questioned her, you will find out many important things concerning the argument that Jack Dentis and Frank Legalbo had. At the time of the argument, Dentis and his woman lived with me and my wife, Grace Gennaro. 
The argument between Dentis and Legalba took place in Legalba's tavern. When they were in the argument, they started to fight in Legalba's tavern, and then the fight was finished at my house. My wife and Jack's woman and I were present at this argument. If you want to talk with me about them, I would like to talk to you alone. Please don't tell anyone about my name, because I am a prisoner, and there are many Italian fellows here from the Third Ward. Keep quiet, and afterward you will find out many important things concerning them. If you will go and see Grace Gennaro about this investigation, do not tell her anything about me, because in 1935 she obtained a divorce, and after she got a divorce, she has been associating with several fellows from the Third Ward. My best friends from the Third Ward took my wife away from me. She deserted me while I was in prison. She and her boyfriends have been at the Immigration Bureau many times. It seems they want me to be deported. Now, she got married again to a certain Phil DeMeo, who lives on North Marshall Street. Never would I have expected such actions from the big shots of the Third Ward, but everybody will pay for it. In the future, you will find out many important things for which they are responsible. Respectfully, Tony Gennaro. Wow, that story really started out as useful, and then it just kind of like went off on a trail and was like, "What is this guy talking about?" Yeah, I Tony, I love I love Tony. He is fantastic. What he said was true. Um, his wife did leave him. I mean, I don't know if she was forced to or what, but she did leave him. She did get remarried to this Phil DeMeo, and Phil DeMeo was um, actually a really popular musician at the time. He traveled around in a big band, big orchestra type thing. And he personally was an influence guitarist, Les Paul, who you may have heard of. Yes. Okay. So actually, he was, he was, pretty, uh, he was pretty influential in his own way. Not known in any way to be connected to the mafia. In fact, that was going to be my next In question. fact, not even Sicilian or anything. So what, what this guy's connection to any of this is, I have no idea. But, but anyway... Uh, so Kramer responds, he goes, Dear Tony, I received your letter. I wish that I could make a visit to the prison and personally see you, but due to the pressure of police business here, I am unable to get away. I am therefore sending Detective Bailey, who I assure you is entirely trustworthy, and you may tell him everything that you would have told me, and he will relay such information to me upon his return. You have my assurance, and that of Detective Bailey, that whatever you say will be regarded in the highest confidence and will be guarded with utmost secrecy. I need hardly tell you that any assistance you may give through such confidential information that will lead to clearance of major crimes committed by local Italians will be appreciated. Detective Bailey went to Wapon immediately to see Gennaro and was able to get a written statement from him. Bailey's report back to uh, Captain Kramer is as follows. Sir, I was at Wapon. I interviewed Tony Gennaro who had written us of his impression of the motive for the murder of Jack Dentis. Regarding the murder of Jack Dentis, this is what Gennaro had to say. You ready? I am ready. Okay. In 1934, Jack Dentis was my partner, and we were selling alcohol. We were always in agreement. One day, we were in an argument with the gang from the Third Ward. A day later, Jack told me, Hey, Tony, they're going to have a picnic, and they want me and you to be there. I thought for several minutes, and then I told my partner that I didn't want to go, but he could go if he wanted to. So Jack left me in my home with my wife and his girl, because at that time, Jack and his girl lived with me. I refused to go there because I figured there was something wrong. Never before had they invited me to their picnic, and we were always having arguments about the alcohol business. 
so this picnic made me suspect that they were probably ready to kill me and Jack both. When Jack went to meet them, they did not see me with him. They quickly changed their minds and no longer wanted to have a picnic. They went to Legalba's tavern and they had dinner instead. During dinner, Legalba and Jack got into an argument about girls, and Legalba told Jack that his girlfriend was a prostitute and that she worked for his uncle. When Jack heard what Legalba had said about his girlfriend, he came home very mad and a little drunk and began to search for his gun to shoot Frank and Frank's gang in the third ward. The next day, Jack's girl ran away because she was afraid to live with Jack after what Legalba had said about her. Jack was sentenced to be killed by order of the big shots. Legalba has three taverns, but the licenses are with different names. Many beautiful girls work at these taverns for him, and trouble is always happening at these places. And that's all he has to say. That's his, that's his story of, of the murder. Not really talking about the murder at all, no, actually. No, I mean, I mean, I guess it shows that they had a relationship and there was some animosity there, right? Yeah. I mean, that's about it, though. So, like, he provides some good background there about what was going on and why they were, why he might not be liked by certain people. But yeah, it doesn't actually lead up to the day of the murder, murder at all. Anything, or yeah. have anything really to do with the murder. Well, I mean, other than pointing towards people that possibly could have been involved, I guess. Okay. I got I got two little pieces left. Okay. I'll do, I'll do one. And that's that um, it's not surprising that Gennaro would know about, you know, things that had happened with his partner, Jack Dentis, because obviously, you know, they're partners. But then he dropped the biggest bombshell of all. There were several more murders that he knew about that the big shots were behind. And we're going to talk about those next week. Eek. Really? <laughs> yeah. So explain to me, what is this big shots? It's uh... This is the he- the heads of the mob. For whatever reason, he calls them the big shots. Okay. Okay. So it's just, these are just a yeah. bunch of mob murders that, yeah. that. This is an actual letter. Like I have a copy of this letter. This is a real thing. Um, and yeah, he calls them the big shots. I cleaned it up a little bit because his English is not that great, but but yeah, he always refers to the bosses as the big shots, <laughs> which I find amusing. And I like that he always says, you will find out many important things. <laughs> yeah, you will find out many important things. Come talk to me, and I will tell you a bunch of useless information. There. Yes. That's funny. So so we, we have no idea who killed this person, per se. Frank, Frank Legelbo is the prime person. He, he's probably the guy, but we don't know. We don't know. know. But in and I assume that this case just went unsolved and it, at, it sure did. And at the, well, at this point, it's not unsolved. It's just closed and lost and forgotten because it was a mob murder. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's nothing you can really do about it now. Yeah. All right. Well, that's another sad and depressing story where yeah. the crime doesn't get solved. But I got I got my one last tiny little piece. Oh, I'm sorry. Go no, for no, it. No, that's okay. Uh, decades later. The FBI spoke with one of their informants, and the informant said that the murder was carried out by Mike Minio, Frank Legalbo, and Andrew DeSelvo, who's from Racine. The motive was that Dentis was getting money from an unidentified union and was supposed to give DeSelvo part of the money, but he didn't. Now, I don't know if that's any more accurate than the other story, but um, it is interesting to note that, again, Frank Legalbo is definitely named. So, mm-hmm. so apparently everybody thinks, thinks that he's so. the guy. 
And he probably is the guy. He probably or, is the guy. I mean, one of the guys probably. Yeah. I'm sure that... Because I, I believe if you said earlier that they actually think that it was two people involved. Yeah. In, right. Yeah, they think it so. was two guys. But yeah, you know, but that's sort of how it is. It's like, if you don't have an eyewitness, you don't have a confession, the best you have is the gunpowder, which is pretty pretty good evidence. But I mean, if the guy says, I went out... I went and out to the edge of town and shot, shot pigeons. pigeons. You can't. What can you do? What can you do? Yeah. Yeah. It's not like you can really match the gunpowder to the bullet or something like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, you go to court and one guy says, you got gunpowder in your hands. You probably murdered somebody. And the guy's like, I got gunpowder in my hands because I shot pigeons. <laughs> Honestly, there's enough evidence equally. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm curious, as, as you have done this research, mm-hmm. at what point in time do you feel like you know, like you say, if there's not really an eyewitness or something, you've said that over and over again, that there really isn't a whole lot they can do. Mm-hmm. When do you feel like in your research that that started to change? Where? Wow. Uh, that's a great question. <sighs> because, I mean, I'm guessing, well, your research goes up to probably the 80s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that I can give a definitive answer, but, I mean, this remains a problem at least through the 60s. I mean, for quite a while. Hell. Because DNA didn't ex- well, it existed, but nobody knew about, about it, it until yeah. the end of the 1980s. Okay. It wasn't really used until the 90s. So DNA, which is like you know, like the gold standard today, completely not usable for any of this. Fingerprints were around, but you can only do so much with that. I mean, if your fingerprint's not on the shotgun, well, no good there. Nobody has security cameras, so again, unless somebody actually sees you do it. There's, they can't, they can't catch you, you know, even, even if like an hour later you go to Walmart, nobody knows because they're, they they can not even tell what you did earlier or later in the day. Cause there's not nobody recording anything. anything. Yeah. Yeah. So really up until, up until first cameras, definitely. And then DNA, I mean, getting away with murder was not that hard. It's kind of terrifying to think about. It is. It is. I mean, uh, this is a way off on a tangent, but. Uh, there's a there's a really great book that I recommend called The Poisoner's Handbook, uh, which is not what it sounds like, <laughs> but it talks about um, how they developed the chemistry of trying to find poisons in bodies, mm-hmm. like at you know autopsies and such. And it's fascinating because really, like it was a constant like back and forth. Like every time they found a new way to detect a poison, there was a new poison. poison. Yeah. So as long as you were using the poison they couldn't detect yet. You could poison people all day long, and they'd be like, "That guy had a heart attack, or that guy did whatever." But yeah, no, I, I mean, to really wrap up your point, um, no, it is it is sad because if you weren't caught in the act, your chances of getting away with things were pretty good for a long time. Okay. I, I mean, the majority of murders are boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. So usually, you know, they know who did it, and they can kind of get a case out of it. But if it's not something like that's that obvious, if it's like they find a random person laying in the street, not a lot they can do about it. It's, I mean, I, I, I can't even fault the police for it because, I mean, what are you going to do other than going around and knocking on people's doors saying, did you see anything? You literally can't do anything. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's a, that's a good note to end on. Sorry. I mean, do you sorry. got anything else for this episode or? No, no. We'll get the, we'll get the second part of the Tony story next time I figured I'd split it up so we didn't 
do a full hour. <laughs> so we're going to, in the next episode, we're going to cover the letter that talks about all the other, Yes. Like, what do we call it? The big? The big we, shots. The big shots. Every, everything that Tony knows about the, the big, big shots. shots. I'm just curious if this letter is just going to be a long ramble on about nothing. Well, you'll find out. Stay tuned for next week's episode to see if it's just a long ramble of nothing. (laughs) All right. All right, Gavin, you want to hit them with some contact info? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, If you want to go to MilwaukeeMafia.com, you can find all kinds of writing there. Uh, If you want to email, you can email MilwaukeeMafia at gmail.com. You can go to facebook.com slash Milwaukee Mafia. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And if you do have a second, please do leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. It does really help us. And we will see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.